This is Sandy Clough and Chandro Tar on Mile High Sports. Welcome to the program. I'm Sean Drotar, Sandy Clough's on my left. You would know that if you were on MileHighSports.com slash watch, because you could see it. Sandy, big day for the Denver Broncos. Big day for the Broncos history. Big day uh, potentially for uh, the Denver Bronco that I think has been the most egregious omission from the oh, football of fame in Canton, Randy Gratishar. I, I think there's an argument to be made that Randy Gratishar should have been the first Bronco uh, elected and inducted into the Pro Football Hall of Fame in Canton. Uh, he was uh, the greatest pre-John Elway player in the history of the Denver Bronco franchise. Uh, no other Bronco has ever to this day earned Defensive Player of the Year nope. honors as Randy Gratishar did in 1978. Uh, Randy was a seven-time Pro Bowler in a 10-year career, five times first-team All-Pro. Uh, career lasted 1974 through 1983. Uh, the Orange Crush defense uh, from the mid-'70s through the end of the decade was right there on par year by year with a steel curtain and the doomsday defense of the Dallas Cowboys. He was the heart and soul of the Orange Crush defense. Uh, he was their best player. Uh, maybe not always the most spectacular, the hardest hitting, the most inspirational, but he was their best player. Not only defensive player, but the best player on the team. Uh, in 1977, 78, and 79, as uh, both Pittsburgh and Dallas, particularly Pittsburgh, became relatively weaker defensively and stronger offensively, the Broncos went the other way. <laughs> 76, 77, 78, and 79, uh, they pretty much got progressively worse as they aged more on the offensive side of the ball. But the Orange Crush defense still existed, uh, maybe not in peak form, but well into the 1980s. Doomsday did not, and the Steel Curtain did not. Uh, now, Doomsday and the Steel Curtain won Super Bowls. The Broncos were in one and lost it to the Dallas Cowboys, whose defense provided uh, the headlines. But imagine how good the Broncos' defense had to be to overcome all the turnovers that the Broncos committed in that football game. And if you go back and really study that game, the Bronco defense basically stopped the Dallas offense. They did their part. The Bronco offense lost the game. And for people not familiar with 1977 uh, and the Super Bowl in particular, just think of the Bronco offense from last year, and you'll get an idea as to how bad the Bronco offense was on Super Sunday in January of 1978 down at the Superdome in New Orleans. The assumption at this point is that one of the, we will be named as one of the three finalists out of the 12 to for for election. I think he's pretty much a lock. It feels like it. And uh, Clark Judge, who is a Hall of Fame voter, and I, I talked with a few of other folks as well, and I'll give you just some of the quotes. Uh, Upton Bell, son of uh, Commissioner Burt Bell, right. uh, talked about Randy Gratishar. Uptown and, and, Bell. Yes, that specifically, I saw Randy's whole career. He was so quick to the ball and an asset in pass coverage. Chris Willis, who was the head of research for NFL Films, 
said he was the best middle linebacker in the AFC for a decade alongside Jack Lambert, played in a 4-3 or he a 3 He was better than Lambert, by the way. He was fast. As well as any backer. And Jack Silverstein of Chicago, who's a sports historian, put Gratishar first and said this. It's past time. Among his in many individual accolades, the 77 Broncos are not only just the Super Bowl, the only Super Bowl team through 2002 without a single player in Canton, but the only team from 1920 to 2002 that either won the league championship or was the runner-up without a single player in the hall. In other words, the 77 Broncos are historically the most maligned championship contending team in history. Randy should have been in the Hall of Fame 33, 34 years ago. He should have been an easy selection, virtually an automatic choice. Now, Randy's career, continuing as it did into the early 1980s, also intersected with the beginning of situation substitution. Mm -hmm. And Randy would be taken out on passing downs for extra defensive backs. Something that virtually every team in the NFL started doing in the early 1980s. And Randy Gratishar was victimized by that. And he was also victimized by the late and otherwise great Paul Zimmerman, who was not only a Hall of Fame voter, but a terribly influential one. And I mean terribly in the sense that for better and often for worse, Paul Zimmerman shouted down any attempt to elevate the candidacy of Randy Gratishar by claiming that Joe Collier and the Denver coaching mm-hmm. staff had been crooked in inflating his tackle. And, and that stuck for, for reasons that, that were unfair. But because it, it was Paul Zimmerman stating it, and Paul Zimmerman was famous for charting games and uh, otherwise analyzing in a fashion that few others did. Uh, his bias against Randy Gratishar was always hard to explain. It may have had something to do with the fact that Randy Gratishar, and this hurt Randy Gratishar, I think, at least subliminally with a lot of people, Randy Gratishar played for Woody Hayes. Mm-hmm. And by the 1980s, Woody Hayes was a reviled He was no longer admired or respected as a great college football coach based on his record. He was reviled for the way he went out. Uh, Strangely enough, in the very year that Randy Gratishar was Defensive Player of the Year. Uh, The great story about Randy Gratishar is that he sustained uh, some knee injuries or at least a knee injury in college. And there was some, you know, draft wasn't as sophisticated back then. John Ralston, the great talent evaluator, who was uh, always a better uh, draft guy than he was a coach, called his good friend Woody Hayes. And Woody Hayes told him, you draft Randy Gratishar, you'll have the best defensive player in football for the next decade. Gratishar under Hayes. uh, Hayes, by the way, once called him the best linebacker I ever coached. In his senior year, 134 tackles, 60 of them solo. Yeah, that led the team, but that's not necessarily what stood out for me when I was looking at it. It was the 1973 Heisman vote. Uh, John Capaletti, the running back from Penn State, won that vote. Uh, Archie Griffin ended up in fifth, the Ohio State running back. And then won the next two But keep this in mind. John Hicks... The tackle, by the way, when tackles could still win Heisman's and it wasn't just a quarterback, running back, wide receiver uh, award, which it is now. Uh, John Hicks from Ohio State finished second. 
Roosevelt Leaks, the running back from Texas, was third. David Jaynes, quarterback from Kansas, fourth. Archie Griffin from Ohio State, also their running back, fifth. Sixth in the Heisman vote. And atop all of defensive players in Heisman voting, Randy Gratishar from Ohio State in sixth. Three of the top six vote-getters were from Ohio yeah. State. So they're splitting some of that. And Randy Gratishar finished as the defensive player in all of college football with the most votes for the Heisman which by today's standards is almost unheard of. And you brought up the situational substitution. And go back to a quote there by Brian Fry. It struck me as as the same thing. Another NFL historian of uh, some repute quote said, I believe he's one of the top five middle and side linebackers ever. I I find his absence from Canton baffling. He was one of the best short yardage defenders in history. He was the best goal line defender I ever saw in my life. And many agree with me who have been watching football longer than I have been watching. Possessed rare lateral playmaking ability and excelled in coverage assignments. Other linebackers at the time didn't even attempt. Correct. He was a much better cover linebacker than Lambert. He was faster than Lambert. He was a better player than Lambert. Lambert played, and Lambert is deserving of a spot in the Hall of Fame, but Lambert played on on a great defense. And, you know, frankly, um, the people in front of Randy Gratishar, good as they were, were not as good as the people playing in front of Jack Lambert. And Jack Lambert was a classic 4-3 middle linebacker. Hall of Fame voters of recent vintage even romanticize four three middle linebackers they discount three four inside linebackers that's what randy gratishar was he wasn't a classic four three middle linebacker although he could have been the other comparison i always make is uh, with sam huff who earned all kinds of notoriety Again, a great player deserving of a spot in the Hall of Fame, but you talk about inflated tackle totals. Sam Huff was smart. During his playing career, he'd accumulate extra tackles in the way certain NBA players, I can think of Jerry Lucas as an example, would figure out there are four or five easy missed free throws a game that I can rebound and pad my rebounding stats. Sam Huff would jump on the top of piles. And in the violent world of Sam Huff, which was the title of mm-hmm. a documentary right. on the famous giant linebacker, Sam Huff got extra tackles because if he jumped on top of the pile, it was the first number you noticed. Yeah. And he got the, the, credit for yeah. tackles that he really didn't make. Sam Huff had, to be honest, something else going for him, the endorsement of Jim Brown. And the endorsement of Jim Brown helped get Floyd Little finally into the Hall of Fame. Jim Brown played twice a year, basically, against Sam Huff and respected him greatly as Huff respected Brown. So those two things, Sam Huff was smart. He knew how to get tackle totals up. And that's the irony of Paul Zimmerman, who knew all about Sam Huff, but Sam Huff played in New York, where Paul Zimmerman spent most of his career writing. I grew up reading Paul Zimmerman in the New York Post. He was the beat man for Joe Namath's Jets and the championship Jets team of 1968 and later went on to greater glory and fame at Sports Illustrated. But I was around Super Bowls 
when Paul Zimmerman was commanding the room, as it were. And of course, while we weren't supposed to know exactly what went on inside that room, it was clear in talking to people who were inside that room informally that Paul Zimmerman would be involved in a great many of the horse trading episodes that we know went on, and he would put the kibosh on Randy Gratishar every time he had the chance to do so. So one man, basically through his criticism, uh, his declaration that Randy Gratishar was overrated, for many, many years, if not many, many decades, kept Randy Gratishar out of the Hall of Fame, unfairly so. And even Clark Judge says that Randy Gratishar, along with Buddy Parker, uh, should have been the two leading candidates in 2020. Yeah, Judge, Judge said specifically they should, he should in. have been included in that centennial neither class of 2020. And uh, three will make it uh, through Judge's sort of informal polling. Actually asked a whole bunch of the voters, you know, out of their top three, who would they pick? And uh, two stood out, Randy Gratishar, uh, which was named on at least out of his straw poll, uh, everybody. The next vote-getter was Sterling Sharp. Makes sense, because if you actually take Sterling Sharp's career uh, in its limited amount of time, the only receiver that was more consistently productive that was playing at the same time was Jerry Rice. That's right. And that was That's it. Right. The, the third, but obviously, it, there's that, a lot that, of choices. And that hurt Randy, too, that 10 years is a long career. I'm mm-hmm. sorry. But it wasn't as long it's as, not as, long some, as some of the other ones, and that's true. The third, there are a couple different uh, names that are in there. Obviously, that may be a little bit up for debate. The presumption by judge is that it appears that Al Wistert, the lineman, and I say lineman because he played offensive and defensive line back in the 1940s, a member of the all-1940s team, four-time first-team Pro Bowl, uh, all-pro, I should say, two-time NFL champion, I may end up finally getting his due. He was named at least on the on the third most ballots in the straw poll. But there are a lot of other candidates as well that that fit. Uh, obviously, you could talk about Randy McMichael is one of those guys. You could talk about um, Otis Taylor is one of the ones that, that was also on there a couple of times. Well, and and Otis Taylor, Eddie Metter, as we've Otis talked about Taylor before, was one of one of the one of the five greatest wide receivers I've ever seen in my life. And he may be in that mix. Those are the guys that were were named on that list. Um, it, oddly, I, I believe he absolutely should be part of it, but not named on the straw poll. And maybe it's just yet yeah, there's the weight you have to have is Roger Craig, uh, who in my mind was the he can clear play. precursor to the Marshall Falks of the world yeah. and the Daniel oh, yeah. Thomas of the world. Great player. Um, had one bad moment uh, in his career, and that was the moment that cost the 49ers a chance for three straight Super Bowls, which to this day has never been done. That came in the NFC Championship game uh, that followed the 1990 season against the New York football giants, the 49ers nursing a late-game lead. Roger Craig fumbles. uh, Lawrence Taylor recovers, and the Giants go on to win on five field goals, 15-13 to over the 49ers. Without that fumble, the 49ers would have been in the Super Bowl that year, and I believe, as the Giants did, the 49ers would have beaten the Buffalo Bills and made it three straight Super Bowl wins. But Roger Craig was a great player and the greatest offense I've ever seen in my life was the 49er offense of the year before which smashed the Broncos 55 to 10 
in the Super Bowl. Oh, yes. And Roger Craig was a major part of that. The Broncos couldn't stop Roger Craig. They couldn't cover Jerry Rice. They couldn't cover John Taylor. Uh, They really couldn't cover or tackle much of anyone that day. And during the regular season, the Broncos had been number one in scoring defense that year in the NFL. But the point I want to make is if you go back and look at Orange Crush versus the Steel Curtain, 1974, Randy's rookie Mm -hmm. year, through 1979, the final six years of the 1970s, you can find plenty of statistical evidence that uh, the Steelers might have been superior in 74, 75, and 76, but in 77, 78, and 79, without question in 77 and 78, the Broncos had a better defensive team. In fact, the Broncos put 30-plus points on the Pittsburgh Steelers in their first-ever playoff game on Christmas Eve, 1977. The bright side of this is that if it appears that it does appear Greta Shaw is going to make it out of the subcommittee, as well as Sterling Sharp, and then we'll find out if it's Taylor or Wistert or somebody else. Uh, Those two seem to be the all-but-locks. And it is essentially, while it's, it's you know, we went with the, we learned about the finalists a little bit ago, you know, not Mike Shanahan, not Dan Reeves, they did not get that cut. Um, making this from the that senior committee is all but a rubber stamp to the hall. Yes. That's essentially yes. what it is. And so that would be a, a monumental <laughs> leap for uh, a person that I agree should, should have been in the Hall of Fame a long time ago. I, and I, I think... There was even a small amount of momentum. I think you're right with talking about uh, uh, Zimmerman's leverage. But there was a small amount of leverage, I think, for Gratishar at the turn of the century again. And then basically Hall of Fame voters decided, well, the first Bronco we should just vote in is John Elway at that point. And then, unfortunately, he got kicked well, down from kicked behind I, the eight ball. Again. I've spoken about this with Jeff Legwald on a few occasions. And Jeff has a Hall of Fame vote. And Jeff was in a major way, responsible for Floyd Little finally getting mm-hmm. And uh, Jeff said, I think after Terrell Davis was inducted, that the next guys who should go in included Randy Gratishar at the very top of the list. That was the priority. Now, there were other guys he mentioned who I think are also deserving. To me, uh, Lewis Reich should be in the Hall of Fame. Agreed. Rod Smith should be in the Hall of I Fame. Agree with that too. Billy Thompson should be in the Hall of Fame. You ask Al Davis. Uh, obviously, you can't now, but uh, during Al Davis's day, uh, Al Davis, of course, had no special love for the Broncos, but he knew great football players when he saw them. And Al Davis felt that Rich Tombstone Jackson, and Billy Thompson, and Lewis Reich were all Hall of Famers. That was Al Davis's opinion, and. I take that pretty seriously. Uh, yeah, yeah, that makes sense to me. But it would feel like a, a great uh, wrong may be righted. The committee meets today. The announcement will be. Paul Zimmerman, by the way, also agreed that Rich Tombstone Jackson was a Hall of Famer. Why he didn't agree with Randy Gratish. You like that head slap? Being a, pow, pow. a Hall of Famer <laughs> is, is beyond me. But I, the head slap helped Rich Tombstone Jackson, but also helped David Deacon Jones. Mm-hmm. So I don't want to hear about how the head slap was the only oh, no. thing that made uh, Tombstone Jackson effective. And I, I'm not talking about you, right. but I'm talking about other people now through the years. Well, that, that was when you could slap guys in the head. I said, Deacon Jones did that all the time. He also came up with the term sack. He did. 
So that helps too. But it sounds like a long time wrong for the Denver Broncos is about to be righted. That would be terrific news. We will find out tomorrow, but all signs point to yes for Randy Gratishar finally getting his time in Canton. The Denver Broncos back at practice before the Rams come into town for joint practices tomorrow and Thursday. We'll give you the latest on the injury situations for the Broncos. And by and large, uh, with one notable exception, it's good. Talk about it next on My Life Sports. Sandy Clough and Sean Trotar, presented by Burnham Law. Hire the winner at BurnhamLaw.com. Here's Sean and Sandy. Good news for the Denver Broncos, and and I think notable in here, because uh, back that suited up for practice today, Mike McGlinchey and Justin Simmons. Uh, Jalen Virgil, the bad news there is that Tormeniscus gets him put on the IR. His season is over the Broncos in his place uh, at wide receiver Josh Hammond, uh, again, more than likely just to help fill out this last week or so uh, of practice. But uh, Virgil does go on IR. His season will be over. But the good news on those other players, uh, not only that they're coming back, obviously that's extremely good news, but I think for Broncos fans, I get that to an extent, by his nature, Sean Payton is going to be somewhat opaque about injuries doesn't bother me at all. At the same time, the early returns here has been a pretty straight shooter. Talked about it with Javante Williams. It was hard to um, to believe it. Turns out he was right on the money. Talked about the uh, injuries for McGlinchey and for Simmons and talking about how, look, if it was regular season they'd play, looks like, again, right on the money. They get ready to go for these joint practices. Uh, he has been quite direct and, at least thus far, quite accurate on the way he's described the injuries for his team, which given, you know, we were in a league where Bill Belichick at one point had to create a rule so he didn't pick every single, all 53 guys is questionable. Uh, I think it's kind of refreshing to get that. Not only the fact that he's been a straight shooter, but the fact that he's on top of it, which over the last couple years with multiple first-time head coaches, you'd ask and they'd defer, well, that'll be staff. No, Sean Payton knows what's going on with all the facets of his team. He's informed. He's on top of it. And he has an answer for you. I agree. It's refreshing. <laughs> Actually get that. Yeah. We'll we'll see how that extends when the season starts. into the regular season. Uh, it is the preseason after all. But, yes, he has made uh, what uh, both of us considered to be overly optimistic projections that have turned out to be right. And it's certainly good news. That, I mean, obviously, McGlinchey and Simmons will not play in any games, but if they're involved in joint practices, even on a limited basis, that's good news. Signals uh, they'll be ready in 19 days mm-hmm. uh, for the opener. I mean, presumably, the if you're going to be good enough to practice in a joint practice and you don't get hurt in the practice, you'd think in two and a half weeks you're still yeah. going to be ready to go. So that's obviously a good sign. We saw that Javante Williams looks good. I mean, for the most part, uh, Sean Payton, who did last week, kind of push back on the, the the woe is us Broncos injury titles and history and even recent history in which, the, you know, there were articles written about 
The Broncos have a ton of money on the injured reserve. A lot of that was, quite frankly, Tim Patrick, who, you know, yeah, almost $11 sure. million. Big but, contract. But the way you want to look, you know, the way you want to slice and dice it, the Broncos yeah. have $12 million on injured reserve already. They're doomed. They have, and Peyton just put the kibosh on that, which on a couple reasons. One, well, he said he didn't want to hear it. Yeah, he's, which is good. One, he's kind of right. I don't want to hear it because there's nothing you can do about it. If people get hurt, they get hurt. But two, also made the point that, no, it's not that bad. Stop getting in that mindset of, oh, we're snake bit. Oh, you know, these things are going to happen. It's football. Guys get hurt. We're no better. We're no worse than anyone else at this point. And even if we were, it doesn't matter. We have to go with the guys that are healthy. And I think getting away from that sort of, woe is us mindset that has permeated the Valley at times is going to be, that's going away. I think Sean Payton is aware. No one's going to feel sorry for the Denver Broncos. If anyone did in the first place, he's getting that out of the building. Still out there though. And, and I understand you can use certain measurements such as uh, most injured team by adjusted games lost a year ago, and Denver was number one. And I understand you can use that same metric and uh, determine that from 2019 through 2022, the Broncos were one of the 10 most injured teams in the NFL over that uh, stretch of time. And that only Kareem Jackson and Patrick Sertan started all 17 games uh, last year. Uh, the average on 17 game starters on a typical NFL team last year was six. So I, I get all of this and it's part of what we heard from our friend, Eric Goodman a, a few weeks ago. And Eric is not alone. Uh, Bill Barnwell, who's been boosting the Broncos for years now. And I love Bill Barnwell, but even Bill Barnwell admitted that the team he's most often gotten wrong, and he's on an annual basis just about picked the Broncos to be one of the most improved team teams, if not the most improved team in in the NFL. But this is what you hear: you hear about injuries, you hear about um, losing uh, games in the uh, final minute on. Uh, Missed McManus field goals last year. You hear about 0 for 3 in overtime. You hear about uh, interceptions in the red zone uh, when the game against the Colts was over, for example, leading to their overtime loss when they had third and two at the Indy 6 to try to win in overtime, and they couldn't convert third and two, and they couldn't convert fourth and two. In fact, fourth and two involved uh, yet another pass interception uh, that they're Defense failed to hold fourth-quarter leads against four teams, uh, including an 18-play drive by the Baltimore Ravens, who were not being quarterbacked by Lamar Jackson at the time. Yes, an 18-play drive that beat the Broncos 10-9 in Baltimore on the same day that Deion Sanders was named head coach and held his introductory press conference at the University of Colorado. Uh, And, of course, they had... uh, uh, halftime chances with a lead. They blew five leads that they had at halftime Uh, from 20 through 22. There were nine and 19 in games decided by seven points or fewer. Um, I've heard all of it, uh, saw a lot of it today in Barnwell's piece on the Broncos. And again, the theory being advanced 
is that all the Broncos need to do is get better with respect to second half coaching and game management. And under Sean Payton, that should be a snap. Yep. Um, I don't agree with the premise. I don't think that all they need the is roster better is second still half coaching not and game deep. management. And that's the reality. It is not deep. The multi- multiple drafts for years prior and multiple trades lately for both Russell Wilson and, yes, for Sean Payton have reduced the depth on this roster. I mean, you've given away three firsts and three seconds. And I, I know there are, there are other players and picks. I get that. But three firsts and three seconds. Those guys are expected to make make your team a bare minimum, right? At, at bare minimum, your, your first and seconds make your team. So that is six players that would have otherwise been on your 53-man roster that aren't. That's an, an 11% difference and presumably an 11% improvement, right? You'd be wanting to take the players who are the basically the 11% that are at the bottom of that roster list and replace them with first and seconds. So that's a significant improvement on the roster. But your first rounders are expected to become starters, if not immediately, some point within their rookie year. So in theory, that's also three starters the Denver Broncos should have. And let's say that one of the second rounders is a starter by, at this point, which is not that uncommon. In fact, probably expected. But now you're talking about, since they didn't draft many punters or kickers, that you're talking about four out of the 22 starters. Sandy, that's 18%, almost a fifth of the roster the starters should be just off the top. The starters should be better on a fifth of the roster. And they are not because of the picks they traded away. Now, Russell Wilson is here. Sean Payton is here. They may make differences that elevate that. But the reality is trading away all those picks compounded by uh, some drafts that did not provide significant depth for the most part prior to George Payton have left this roster thin. Uh, this wasn't all that long ago in the offseason. You and I, fortunately, I think, kind of scoffed at the idea that the Broncos had the deepest group of receivers in the league. They didn't. They never did. And at this point now, with Tim Patrick Hurt again. They don't now. Either. They don't now. Marvin Mims has just now made his debut with a catch. Your top three receivers as it stands right now, Jalen Virgil is now hurt as well. Brandon Johnson is working his way back from an injury. Our Jerry Judy, Cortland Sutton, and Marquez Calloway? Presumably. I hope and, not. And then Mims? Hope not. Hope Calloway is a number three. Who is? It's Mims, Mims isn't there they yet. They don't have a number three. They don't have one. So that's definitely not that deep. No. And that's the... And that was considered to be, right, not only one of the deepest position, the deepest position on the team, but maybe the deepest in the league? I don't... I, I understand from the national level where people don't look at the Broncos very often and they look at some names that they remember and think that was a high draft pick and I watched that guy in college. That's really good. Okay, they're going to be good because over the last well, very many years, the Broncos have not been worth watching for people on the national level that are spending their time watching other games. But out here in Denver, where we focus on this team, I think it's been obvious this team is not deep. And so the injuries, when they've happened, have hurt the Broncos worse than they have other teams. Not that the injury bug, I think, has been unfair to the Broncos, but the impact is outsized because their depth is inferior to a lot of their competition in the AFC West and, and the AFC in and general. This is why you lose games late. 
And one of Barnwell's contentions was, well, the Broncos had fourth-quarter chances in both games against Kansas City last year. For how many years have we been hearing that? That's about how They've lost the 15 now? games yeah. in a row to Kansas City. I don't want to hear how they had chances in the fourth quarter because they weren't 14 points or more in arrears of the Chiefs by the time the fourth quarter rolled around. So, yeah, they had a chance. There was a one-score deficit, so they had a chance. Well, there have been a number of the 15 games where you could say the same thing. They haven't won any of them. Uh, so, you know, I, I I get that Sean Payton in New Orleans is 57-47 and 47 in one-score games, basically. Uh, he's a capable coach, certainly an experienced coach, and as Barnwell sardonically noted, he probably on opening day, if faced with the same late-game situation that Nathaniel Hackett confronted a year ago, will know that fourth and five affords you a better chance to win the game on conversion than a 64-yard field goal attempt, maybe even at altitude. But if that were to crop up at sea level, I assume that Russell Wilson would be given the chance to go for it along with the offense on fourth and five rather than having, oh, uh, Maher attempt of 60-yard field goal or a longer one. Um, I do take note of the fact that I think the defensive coordinator in Carolina is superior to the defensive coordinator here in Denver, and the defensive coordinator in Carolina happens to be uh, Ivaro Edgero, uh, who was the defensive coordinator here last year, and I thought did a passable job and was basically given the bum's rush as soon as the season ended as if he had failed. And it's interesting because last year, and I've seen this measurement made a couple of times, uh, at least multiple times, uh, through week 13, the Denver defense was fourth in the NFL in expected points added per play. They were second in points per possession allowed. And I guess in week 14 and on through the rest of the season, it was all Evero's fault that the Broncos were 29th in EPA per play defensively and 31st in points per possession allowed. I guess the first 13 weeks, that was players. And the last five weeks, that was inferior coaching. So I'm glad we have that settled now. Yeah, it's it is more than that, and that's those are the challenges that the Broncos team faces because there are more things involved than just the coaching can fix. Right, at least I should say immediately, right now. Some of this look players win games. The Broncos need more players, more dynamic, more consistent, higher caliber players up and down the roster, and that simply takes time and it can't be fixed in one off season and it's not going to be fixed for the Denver Broncos. Doesn't mean they can't get better. Doesn't mean they can't start turning this thing around. I'm just saying don't play in the Super Bowl party. That's all. Now Bill Barnwell does pick the Broncos to make the playoffs. That's good news. I mean, Maybe it doesn't hurt, I guess. But the bad news is for the last two years, Prior to this one, he has also picked the Broncos to make the playoffs. That would include Vic Fangio's last year and uh, part of a season coached by Nathaniel Hackett. Yeah, the uh, 
the uh, short-lived Jerry. So let the buyer beware. On top of that, the Broncos are going to need more wins if they get to the playoffs. Uh, They, however, are going to get them over the course of a few months. If you're injured in an accident, you need to get them right now. And that's why you need to talk to our friends at Burnham Law. BurnhamLaw.com is the website. 720-845-7001 is the number. Go out and hire the winner. That's Burnham Law. Locations in Fort Collins, Boulder, Westminster, Cherry Creek, DTC, Colorado Springs, and up in Cheyenne, the main personal injury office is right in the DTC, and their injury attorneys have years of experience fighting for their clients. When you're injured, they're pushing for you to get your maximum recovery the best way that works out for you, whether that's by settlement or by trial. So don't hire someone off the billboard. Hire someone who you know will fight for you and get the wins. That's Burnham Law, 720-845-7001. The Never Broncos await the Rams for joint practices, the champion Denver Nuggets. All of a sudden, it's August, not that far away from coming back. That's what happens when your team plays for a long time. The folks at ESPN are getting ahead of things. Asked who would win the MVP this year, in their opinion. Uh, let's just say the, the once and future king may be in order. We'll talk about it next on Miley Sports. This is Sandy Clough and Chandro Tar on Mile High Sports. The Denver Nuggets, of course, will be defending their NBA title. They will start that by getting their rings in front of the Los Angeles Lakers to start the NBA season. But getting ahead of things over at ESPN, they had their panel of experts taking a look at the uh, MVP award and who they believe would end up winning it. I guess not surprising because let's face it, but besides Joel Embiid, who ended up winning it last year in sort of a split the difference vote because the voters apparently didn't want either Nikola Jokic or Giannis Antetokounmpo to have three MVPs in their career. Nikola, uh, Nikola Jokic ends up kind of getting shorted on that. I don't think he cared in fact, quite frankly, a couple of the Nuggets players after the season said that Jokic played looser once all of that kind of fell apart when Kendrick Perkins sort of had some uh, uh, essentially, you know, allegations of racism in the voting. And then that basically torpedoed Jokic's candidacy. And to hear some of his Nuggets teammates say that that actually let Jokic play more free and clear because he doesn't really, he was sick of hearing it anyway and could focus on what he was trying to do, which they did, win the NBA championship. And he walks away with the finals MVP, one that I guarantee you he likes better than the regular season MVP. But nevertheless, oh. the voting was pretty clear, Sandy. Yeah. Uh, Embiid finished in fifth place in the voting, interestingly. Uh, Jason Tatum with 13 uh, out of their votes, 13, but only 7.7% of the first yeah. place votes. Those only three people got more than 10%. Luka Doncic of the Mavericks, 11.5%. Uh, he was about in that range last year, too. And I think the Mavericks have to be better for Luka to have a chance at that. But they do. But that's where uh, he sits. Giannis at second with 23.1 and with a whopping 42.3%, almost double that of the second place Antetokounmpo, Nikola Jokic, 42.3% of first place votes. It is not even close. And at this stage after winning, Sandy, 
do you think if he had the kind of season he had last year, voters have any issue now since he's won a title to say, no, that's the MVP, even though he's won two more? No, I I, I think, again, we talked about it a lot during the year. The discussion was three straight when he has three straight is very right. And when he hadn't won a title, that that was sort of an argument for people. I I suppose, but it's a regular season award. And, you know, people constantly throw postseason accomplishments or failures in the in the face of people who win MVP awards, uh, Dirk Nowitzki, remember, was MVP, and his team got embarrassed in the first round by Golden State mm-hmm. when Don Nelson was the coach there. This is 15 years ago or something. Um, and it, certainly that was embarrassing, but it, it didn't affect and shouldn't have affected uh, it in any context. Uh, the legitimacy of Nowitzki as an MVP. Uh, Nikola Jokic has, for the past three years, been the best player in the world. And I assume he will continue to be the best player in the world in 23-24. That doesn't necessarily mean the Nuggets will repeat as champions. But uh, I'll I'll tell you in kind of a perverse way uh, how highly the Nuggets are regarded. Uh, Remember when we talked about... uh, at least for me, my favorite story in sports yesterday was the uh, Toronto Raptors organization, in effect, including their new head coach and one of their more recent hires being sued by the New York Knickerbockers right. in Manhattan for uh, stealing emails and other or basically, yeah, basically having like a guy on the inside sending right, them stuff. Who used to work for the Knicks and was recently hired by the Toronto Raptors. And among the Toronto emails that were allegedly stolen from the Knicks, among those emails, there contained advanced scouting reports of the Denver Nuggets Hmm. with player stats, key plays and frequency data, player tendencies, and strategy analyses. Hmm. So even though... The Raptors only play the Nuggets twice, as do the Knicks. Information on the Nuggets was considered uh, worth the valuable risk. property. And worth that risk. Apparently, allegedly. Wow. I say apparently, allegedly, by the Toronto Raptors, who apparently didn't think their scouting reports on the Nuggets were as good. As the Knicks, so they're going right? to take the Knicks scouting reports on particularly according to the lawsuit, the Indiana Pacers and the Denver Nuggets. Maybe they were hmm, they were prepping for Bruce Brown this year. I mean, I, 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 don't, I don't know. I don't know. I mean, maybe. He'll be, he'll be back. I mean, he's, he would be. He would be. <laughs> wouldn't you he's think? Your, he's your overlap. He'd be uh, one of the uh, key players he, who, whose tendencies you'd want to know something about uh, as – you know, about as good a six man as there yeah, was in the he's, NBA. He's got the uh, he's got the Pacers. You know the rest of them, and now he's got the Nuggets. You got Bruce Brown. I I don't know what a, what an odd thing. I'm, the, there there are times sometimes when I look at it and think, I'm I'm more shocked that doesn't happen more often than it does. And then at the same time, I look at it and think it's ridiculous that it sort of happens at all because teams have rather robust. Video departments, you scouting would think. departments. They're all you, you would think. And this guy who there was are differences, hired, but was hired apparently by the new coach in Toronto. And 
advanced quickly up the chain of command, as it were, with the Knickerbockers and was hired by Toronto just a few weeks ago. So this they didn't wait very long to file this lawsuit. They were on to this guy, apparently. And he must have done something. I mean, it, I, it, not prejudging what's going to happen in the case, but given the rather lukewarm denials by the Raptors, yeah, lukewarm something is, is right afoot. Something is afoot here. They, they issued kind of an obligatory denial, but it was as if they didn't really have their hearts yeah, in it. it was sort of more like, oh, we've received the report. How about that? Hmm. Yes. Yeah, yeah. That's, uh, that's good. Yeah, They've like, acknowledged okay. receiving uh, the information that does contained feel like, within the you know, lawsuit. They know they're being sued. Allegedly, but it does kind of seem like, you know, they... Well, our hand might have been in the cookie jar, and someone might have actually seen that our hand was but, in the cookie but jar. In all, in so all we might need to not be super adamant maybe, that we our hand wasn't in the cookie maybe jar. They, they wanted a different perspective on Jokic and... Uh, I, I can't even remember. Nuggets and Knicks split this year head-to-head? I, I honestly I don't. don't I honestly don't recall. Uh, well, I really you, don't. You, I can, you I'll, have I'll give it a peek for sure. But uh, At yeah, your I, fingertips, the information. Yes, so yes. Of course, you, you assume I can shuffle through 82 games really fast with my brain. But they did. you're right. They did lose to the Knicks at home, 106-103, in November. And then when they played the uh, Knicks in Denver, actually... They lost the. I'm probably they played the Knicks in New York. I mean, they lost one sixty to one ten. They lost both games to the Knicks. The did Nuggets, they? The Nuggets did. As it I, turns I, out, I, I thought this last year they, they, they did. Games. So I mean, uh, that's rare. May, that hadn't happened. Maybe in many, that many, scouting many was worth uh, the so risk maybe for. The Knicks had some information that other teams did not. Not a lot of teams, even not a lot of West, teams, beat the Nuggets beat twice. The Nuggets twice. Mm-mm, that's true. That is interesting. Jokic just, didn't play in that first one. Okay, no. well that helps for sure. Uh, but but yeah, they but, still would have they, had scouting reports on. They still, uh, they still did. And they split with Toronto, by the way, as well. They lost in Toronto and won by five in Denver. Both games were in March. I did remember that. So uh, take that as you will. But that, that is kind of, it, it is an interesting story. <laughs> it is. Uh, the Nuggets beat the Pacers both times they played them, though. So, you know, for whatever, but that, that works out. Uh, I- interesting point well, the there. Pay, about, the Pacers are victims. And, yeah. So, as right. are the Nuggets, I guess. Uh, Bruce Brown, by the way, uh, interesting with this ESPN piece that they put together where everyone kind of looked at the uh, at the potential for all the awards. Yeah. Uh, the Nuggets weren't worried about being mentioned in Rookie of the Year. That wasn't really going to be the thing. Probably not Defensive Player of the Year either. They didn't have a person in either of the votes. Uh, they didn't have Sixth Man of the Year either, but Bruce Brown was listed as the 10th most likely. That seems pretty good because I don't think Bruce Brown's the sixth man anymore for $20 million a year. Oh, no. Uh, He's starting. starting. He's starting. And uh, the leader of that, of course, with 26.9% is Chris Paul. We will see if Chris Paul's going to be a sixth man as well. A second on that was Austin Reeves. Not willingly. I'm not sure Austin Reeves is a sixth man either uh, anymore. Wasn't he starting in the playoffs? Yeah. I don't remember. He he sure was. And and played pretty well. He did start. I mean, there had been some injuries, but I mean, I I think he's been elevated to a level where he's... He's going to play major. I mean, isn't he their third best player? I thought, I thought he was. So. I thought so. So, I mean, I don't think he's going to be a, so. a six-man, and I'm uh, not although, really sure that Chris uh, Paul's uh, going to come off the bench yet. The kid came off the bench and was pretty effective, the kid they traded for. Oh, Hachimura. Uh, Hachimura. Yeah, he was yeah Hachimura was really he was pr- But I agree. Austin Reese is their third-best yeah. player. In the Michael Malone, the other uh, Nugget listed, third place, 7.7%. 
uh, for Coach of the Year. Eric Spolstra at 19.2% is ahead of Malone, 7.7. And the uh, runaway leader there, because of the assumption is, maybe not an incorrect assumption if Chet Holmgren is healthy, is that the Thunder are going to all of a sudden reemerge as threats. That would be Mark Daniel, who has a, a 38.5% of the first place vote for coaches. But well, Michael that's Malone, how coach of the year goes, right? Yeah. You don't you don't have to be great, but you have your to team improve. has to make a jump. Yeah, and and that's why it leap. makes it hard for yeah. teams that are already really good to have your, right. your coach that's, on yeah, there. That's why Malone only gets yeah. 7.7. Malone's only 7.7. You know, Spolster gets a lot there, but the, the Heat made a big run from the eighth place right. spot. Right. Uh, you know, Darvin Ham is sixth. Uh, Nick Nurse is sixth with the Sixers. Those teams are expected to be good. Uh, Steve Kerr didn't even get votes. He's generally a coach of the year caliber guy. Greg Popovich didn't get both. Same thing. It's because you, the expectation is how much will your team make a leap. That's tough. But uh, I, I think that the idea of uh, Jokic being a three-time MVP somehow sounding uncomfortable to certain voters, I think all that is over. It is Jokic's time, and I think the entire league knows it, and I think, quite frankly, they're starting to embrace it as well. So the, the good sign for... Uh, the Nuggets fans in town, of which there are now more than there were before, and that's good. Welcome aboard. It will be a fun season for them as well. The Denver Broncos get joint practices underway at Dove Valley tomorrow, two days with Sean McVay's Rams before taking the day off Friday and then playing them in a game that will be uh, resembling football with a whole bunch of guys I have said that through aren't the years, likely to make a game the filled with bus riders and stake eaters. Guys yes. will not make the team. I never figured that one out. I mean, is this, that, no, is this it wasn't expensive? my line. It wasn't my line. It was uh, but maybe you, Leon Fuller's okay. line in the You're late 1980s at Colorado State. Hmm. And, well, he's it's a demeaning remark. Oh, it's yeah. just guys who are satisfied to eat steaks and ride buses. Uh, they aren't players. And he, he said, his line was, we got us a whole bunch of bus riders and steak eaters. So the game itself, not all that valuable. The joint practices, however, will be. Aaron Anderson of Fox 31 joins us to talk about it next on My Life Sports.